albums. We thank you and we celebrate that you did what no one or no thing could do for us. You made a way for us to be made right with God again. And only you could do it. Thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for your willingness to fulfill God's plan to save creation. Saving me for saving us. Amen. Well, we come today to the conclusion of our series on conversations with Jesus. And as we come to this, this is one of those conversations that I've really been anxious to talk to you about for several months. It's one that has been on my heart because there's a lot in this conversation. It's very, well, it's very, it's very powerful. It's very personal. Now, before we dive into this conversation that Jesus has, and it's a conversation that Jesus has through prayer with God. So we get to actually hear and see the kind of conversations that Jesus had with his father. We also know this happens at a very pivotal moment in the story. Now, this is right before the cross. And so it's a very, a very important prayer for many, many reasons. But one of the things that's special about this prayer, and as we look at it, we hear the mission, we also hear the heart of Jesus. For years now, I've been involved in marriage counseling with couples, premarital counseling for couples that are going to get married. And as I've done that, a friend of mine, Ken McCormick, who was a really great mentor and great minister uh, who's gone on to be with Jesus, but he had told me a long time ago that one of the things that you should incorporate into your marriage counseling is encouraging couples to pray together. He says if you can encourage a husband and a wife to pray out loud together, it can do marvelous things for their marriage. Now, I can't tell you that Dream and I pray out loud together every single night. We don't. But we regularly do. It's an important thing to do. Why is that? Well, there's really nothing that is more intimate or a, a greater window into a person's soul and heart and spirit than to hear how they pray to God and what they pray about. Incidentally, it's really hard to pray for your spouse, or it's really hard to be mad at your spouse when they're praying for you out loud. That's not an easy thing to do, right? And so it's a good thing to do to pray for each other. It increases a bond of intimacy that shows us each other's hearts. You know, I'm creeping up on the anniversary of 25 years here at Ogleville, and I've shared this with you before, that when I first came, the most shocking thing to me was how long the elders prayed in elders' meetings. It was just, just phenomenal to be un, unheard of. I had come from a culture where one person said a prayer, and we got on to the business meeting. And the idea that every person in the room would pray and that the prayer list would be long and that the prayer time would go well past an hour was just foreign to me. In fact, I, I confessed, I fell asleep more than once. It was a lot of praying. And in my early days especially, I remember sometimes thinking, can we just get on to the important stuff? But now I look at that and I say, you know what? That was the important stuff. It is the important stuff. There's a reason there haven't been schisms and, and divisions in our leadership. One of those reasons is that we show each other our hearts before we begin meetings, when we pray and we lift up things. And once again, it's really hard to, to get too rankled or, or too upset with someone who just spent 10 minutes praying for you and your family and your circumstance. It's, it, it helps us to come together. And it's still something that's, that marks our eldership 
uh, that they are frequently and, and fervently people of prayer. So I say all of that to tell you that this conversation today, it has the power to soften our hearts, to change our understanding even of some of the things that were happening to Jesus and that happened to us. And it, it really shows us an intimate, personal glimpse into the heart of our Savior that we don't find elsewhere in Scripture the way we find it here. So if you have your Bibles, let's take a look at this last of conversations in the series in the book of John, the Gospel of John, the 17th chapter, beginning in verse 1. Now this opens with these words, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now, this is an important phrase, although it's one that we don't always understand. The, the, the Greek word behind the word glorify is doxazo, and it has a meaning that, that's more than just ascribing value to something. It actually has a meaning of to reveal its true worth, its true value. Uh, it has an idea of revelation coming forth when he says the words glorify. That phrase has shown up already in the Gospel of John in a powerful way. When Jesus is making the journey into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry in John chapter 12, there's this powerful moment in verse 27 where Jesus says out loud, my soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? No, it is for this purpose that I have been sent or that you sent me. Then Jesus says, Father, glorify my name. And God says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It's an interesting uh, occasion. Now, what happens next is the people hear this voice of God, and some people think it's thunder. And then the thing that Jesus says next is really profound. <laughs> he, he basically says next, you know what? Now the prince of this world will be thrown out. When this moment was revealed, this was the moment that God says, Jesus has a true purpose, and it's on display now. Jesus knew exactly what it was, right? He says, save me from this hour. What, what will I say, right? Am I going to say, save me? No, this is why I'm here. And the full scope of the mission was revealed, right? It showed the true depth of what Jesus was about. So God is saying, in that moment, when he speaks out loud, it's just like when he spoke at his, at his baptism. This is my son who I'm well pleased. God is confirming, you are the one that's going to save the world. Now, did people understand it? They didn't. Did the disciples understand it? They didn't. Now here, in John, we come to a remarkable moment. Each of the last three sermons, we've heard Jesus use that phrase about during the day, you can do certain things that you can't do at night. He said, the night hasn't come yet. The hour hasn't come yet. Last week, we talked about that. But now, Jesus makes it plain. It's time. This is the moment. And his prayer to God is, all right, God, reveal the true purpose of my being to my friends, to these who are here. As he prays that, Jesus illuminates what God has done for him. 
For you granted your son, him, authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus and God have been in this space of of, of glory long before there was an earth or a planet. I want you to understand that Jesus set aside his majesty, his glory, all those things. He set all of those things aside. Paul gets it right when he says he made himself nothing, taking on the very appearance of a man in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus has set all that aside. He longs to be back with the Father, as he had been for a long time. But this is that ultimate moment in the story where God dies for his creation, where Jesus will die on the cross. So we hear Jesus' prayer, and his prayer is for himself, but it's also for his disciples. This is important. He goes on now to have a very specific prayer for the 12. It's not a prayer for me and you. This next prayer is specifically for the 12 disciples that he has been ministering with for three years. Listen to what Jesus says. I have revealed you. Remember, he's praying this whole time. John is writing down a prayer. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words that you gave me, and boy, these next three words are so important, they accepted them. Have you noticed that in each of these conversations, belief and acceptance, those are key concepts that have to do with what the mission that Jesus has for us is. It's important. His word in this case is important. He says, they've accepted my word. And they know with certainty that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. And I pray for them. Now this next part is a little odd to us at first. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you have given me. For they are yours. Indeed, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. <laughs> this is incredible, because when we look at the stories of the disciples to this point, and soon after it, they make so many mistakes. Uh, they have missed the point over and over. The children come, and they're like, stay away from Jesus. He's the way they do with kids. And Jesus like, what are you doing? Let the children come to me. Don't, don't run them away. They constantly are missing the moment. They constantly, they're arguing about things that are trivial when Jesus is thinking about the cross. It's, it's a constant picture of them getting things, well, getting them wrong, quite frankly. And yet, in spite of that, Jesus said something very interesting when he prayed to God that night. They've brought glory to me. How did they do that? 
Somehow, in spite of all of the mess-ups and mix-ups and getting it wrong, their hearts had gotten it right. That encourages me because, you know what, I mess up a lot. I bet you do too. And I'm encouraged to know that Jesus can look past some of those things, to look into my heart, to know that I believe, to know that we accept him, that we love him in spite of our failings. Jesus says, they've accepted me, they've believed. I'm praying for them. Glory's come to me through, through them. Verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. It's not the whole point of this sermon, but it is important that Jesus acknowledge something. There is power in the name of Jesus. There really is. It was a name that God uh, destined and gave to Jesus for him to have upon the earth. There is power in his name. What's the Bible say? All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is power uh, in the name of Jesus. Well, you should never take it lightly or in vain. It, it, it would be silly to do that. It's a gift that God's given us, not something that we should treat trivially. There's power in his name. When you pray... And you say those words, in Jesus' name, uh, it's a call that says there is power, God. You can do these things. You can accomplish them. There is power. Jesus even said, there's power in the name that you've given me. Now, he goes on from there. He's asked for unity. That's a theme that we're going to see again, and we'll talk more about it in a few moments. But while I was with them, Jesus said, I protected them. I kept them safe by the name. None of them has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. In spite of the torture, the mental torture that Jesus went through thinking about and contemplating the cross, more than once we read it was for the joy set before him that he did it. He's even saying to his disciples now, there's joy in my heart. Why? Well, the sacrificing of his life will be torturous, but the salvation of his friends, of his followers will be joyful. <laughs> he rejoices in the good that's going to come from all the pain, the good that's going to come from all the difficulty. There's joy in his heart, even as there is also sadness. It's a very powerful prayer. He goes on to say this. Now, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they, not, they are not of this world any more than I am of the world. Now, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So sanctify them by the truth, for your word is truth. And as you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified." 
Sanctification is this process by which we become more and more uh, like God, like Jesus. Jesus is saying that when he is about to lay down his life sacrificially, that this too is him embodying everything that God is. Sanctification is the call towards holiness. Now I want to pause for a moment here to say something that's very important in the time we live. There are two different extremes that people fall into, that congregations fall into. One extreme is the trap that the people, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees of Jesus had fallen into. That is, they emphasized holiness, but they didn't recognize grace. So all that mattered to them was if you were perfect or not, and if you had followed every rule, dotted every I, crossed every T, and if you failed in any one part, then you failed in all of it. That was kind of their thinking. They were legalistic. They were harsh. They were hard. Uh, They were quick to point out flaws and sins in others, but slow to see them in themselves. And there are movements today that have become very legalistic. They're very much about a holiness but they downplay or they look, they, they look away from the importance of grace. Conversely, there are movements that are so appreciative of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, they make no call to holiness. Uh, they, they disregard the call to obedience and, and to becoming like Jesus. Anything goes, and, and they so overemphasize grace that they miss that there is any sanctification that happens in us or any change that has to happen on us. And this too is an error. The Corinthians had made this error and Paul pointed that out to them. That they shouldn't continue in sin that there would just be more and more grace. That shouldn't happen. That's not what it's about. There has to be transformation. So I want us to gather that, that both of these are important. Holiness is important. But also as we strive to be like Jesus, we recognize that grace also must come into the picture because we won't always get it right. But just because we've failed in the past in an area of temptation or sin doesn't mean we should just go on doing it, knowing that God's grace will be sufficient far from it. We want to live our lives in the balance of holiness and grace. This is important because this is what Jesus was demonstrating with his disciples before the cross, and it's what he'll demonstrate again after the cross. Does he want them to be holy? He does. You're holy people. You don't belong in the world. You're not worldly people. You're holy people. You're separate. You've come away from that. By the same token, will he also extend grace to them? Absolutely. Will they fail? They will. And he will be gracious to them. All the way to the end. So he says, I want them to be truly sanctified. I want them to be truly holy. And wherever they have fallen short, there is where my grace will be sufficient for them. Well, that was his prayer for the 12. Now, what happens next is remarkable. Because, friends, in the next few verses, you get to hear Jesus' prayer for you and for me. In the mind's eye of God, he looks forward and prays out loud for us specifically for us. Listen to these words. He's praying. He's prayed for himself. He's prayed for his disciples. And now he prays for you and me. My prayer is not for them alone, verse 20. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and I, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. By the way, that's an interesting verse. What did he start by praying about God? Glorify me, bring, bring glory to this mission, reveal the purpose to people, let there be revelation and understanding. And now he says, I'm giving them that. I'm giving this to them. I'm giving that same glory you've given me to them. Those people, me and you, he's giving that to us. And he says that when we receive that, that the world will believe in him, that Jesus was sent by God. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There is a witness in our unity. There is a witness to the world when we don't tear each other down, but when we build each other up. There is a witness when the church is one and not divided. One of the things that I love about this church is that it was born out of something called the Restoration Movement. It was a movement that started in the early days of America. It was a call for us not to be Wesleyans or Baptists or, 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 or Methodists or whatever. It was a call for us to be Christians, Christians only, to be one. And it was a call to, to, to downplay the idea of having lots of creeds and, 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 and man-made ideas about what we should have. And it was a call that said, let's just kind of try to be like the, the church of the Bible. Let's pattern ourselves after the New Testament church that's described as best we can. And, and the idea was, in matters of scripture, uh, fidelity. In the matters of opinion, love. In all things, love. And... Uh, it was a unity movement, and it had a lot of success for a time, especially in Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky, very powerful uh, movement, and we were a strong body of, of Christians, even though we were in different places. It's a good call. It's a good idea. We call towards unity because that's what Jesus told us to do, uh, to be one. It's kind of an indictment against the church that that this hour of the week is the most divided and segregated hour in America. It's not a good witness for us. But what is it that causes attention? It's what we said earlier. Because we know now we have congregations that are going towards extremes that frustrate us, and it's hard for us to see how can we be unified in those things. So we are in attention. But the call to unity as a witness is still valuable. Jesus told us, that when we are one, that there is a, a benefit for the world, that they see Jesus in that. Right now, when we look at our world, we see a very, what, divided, polarized world. It's hard to see Jesus when we can't see our brother without hate or frustration or anger or disappointment. Now he goes on and he says this, verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory and the glory you have given me 
Because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they, that's me and you, they know you have sent me. I have made you known to them. I like this next part. I will continue to make you known. Jesus is continuing the work of revealing God in us even today. Why? In order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus is not desirous of being a distant entity that we slave away for and he occasionally looks at us and acknowledges us. Those are what people thought of the gods of mythology and the gods that were worshipped when the Israelites were going across the land. Those were gods that were distant. They were an ideological thing that said, God doesn't want to trifle with man and humanity. But Jesus says something radically different because he's the one and only true God, and the true God desires to be close to his creation. Jesus says, I want to be in them, with them, every single step of the way. When we understand that, we have a better understanding of what what we heard last week in the Lazarus story, or two weeks ago when we heard about, about how Jesus wept with them and he mourned with them and he grieved with them. Why? Because he was with them and he was, well, he was not just physically with them, he was already spiritually connected to them and he is spiritually connected to us if we have accepted him as our Lord and as our Savior. I want you to think about this. Jesus was praying for you before you were ever even born. He was praying for you and for me because he knew that one day you would come to belief in him. And he was praying for all of us. He wants us to be with him and he's coming back. And one day, everything he said there will be fulfilled for those who have loved him, who have stepped away from this world and said, this world's no longer my home. I'm just passing through. My, my home and my treasure is way beyond the blue. That's us. That's me and that's you. It might be that you're here this morning and and as you hear the prayer of Jesus, you think to yourself, you know what? I'm unworthy of that. I'm unworthy of that. I mean, it's great for those people like the disciples that ultimately gave their life, but I've really, boy, I've blown it in a lot of ways. You know what? Unworthy, that moniker could honestly be used for every single one of us. The Apostle Paul would say there's no one righteous, not even one. It's not based on our righteousness, it's based on his righteousness. That's what makes us right with God. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, well, you're missing out on a chance to be connected to your creator, and, and he wants to be your very best friend. He wants to change your life. He's been praying for you for a long time. Maybe it's time you said yes to Jesus. If you have a decision to make, will you make it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation? Mm -hmm.